Police say they are only beginning their investigation into the two decomposing bodies discovered across the street from each other this week. She says the attacker cut Megan's hair, but her daughter couldn't see who it was. Happy Lynn Patterson was last seen leaving her home here on East 9th Street a year ago today. Tonight, a special edition of our program examines Robeson County, a place where poverty, distrust, and violence have become a public issue. When you've got a fragmented county this way, uh, everybody's pulling against everybody else. They never pull together for the common good of the county. Um, a lot of jealousies, uh, what this race or this locality gets, we don't get. Instead of looking at it that the county gets this, it's like hitching up a wagon five different ways and pulling at it from all five angles. Welcome to Darkwater, an investigative podcast hosted by me, Brett Andrews. And me, Nick Andrews. You're back with Brett. And Nick. So unless we can unearth something important in the coming weeks or a new development happens on its own, we're beginning to look for closure in our first season. While this isn't the last episode, we're getting close to wrapping up our story so far. But make no mistake, the entire point of this podcast initially was to find out what led to the deaths of Kristen, Rhonda, and Megan, as well as the disappearances of Cynthia and Abby, all over the course of just under five months from the same area, Lumberton's East Side in 2017 then regarded as North Carolina's most dangerous town, and ranking high on the list nationally as well. In this episode, we're taking a step back in time, 16 years ago, leading up to the mysterious murders of two women, Michelle Driggers and Lisa Harden, who met their end in Lumberton under circumstances eerily similar to that of Kristen, Rhonda, and Megan. The potential connection between these women, even if at times incredibly circumstantial, is part of what ignited the search for answers in this journey we started nearly two years ago. And before we delve into those crimes, we're going to set the state for what was happening in Lumberton politically and socially before and during the deaths of Michelle and Lisa. While it may seem unrelated at first, it should become increasingly clear why true justice can be a novel concept in this county for someone without means and perhaps why many of these cases remain unsolved today. Now is definitely the time to find out if you're more cautious in exploring patterns within these events in Lumberton as mere coincidence or if you're beginning to spiral into a conspiracy spanning decades. You get to decide. Personally, I found myself in a gray area in between for some time now. Okay, so the year was 2003. And just to put you back in that time frame, wherever you were in life, uh, the country was captivated by the invasion of Iraq, not even two years after 9-11. So that was any sort of milestone you kept up with. That's kind of uh, what I first remembered when thinking about that. But that same year, Operation Tarnished Badge, a state investigation into corruption in Robeson County, particularly the Sheriff's Department, was underway. Uh, this was a situation where the department was nearly cleaned out after a massive corruption investigation took place while under Sheriff Glenn Maynard. It would be several years before the Robinson County Sheriff's Department would be brought to justice in the mid to late 2000s, including Maynard himself, with over 20 deputies being charged with everything from pirating satellite television, kidnapping drug dealers for ransom, arson, 
taking bribes and essentially acting as a conduit for other local drug dealers, facilitating transactions that proved financially beneficial for all involved. Deputies were even rumored to have set one man on fire, but charges were later dropped. As a result of the operation, over 300 drug charges stemming from deputies involved were dropped. Their names tarnished anything they touched, not just their badges. Some still actually live in Lumberton and in Robinson County to this day, working new jobs, obviously. Let's take a step back to 1988. I was a one-year-old. I wasn't born yet. To discuss Operation Tarnished Badge, another major event in the area which shined a spotlight on the struggle for justice in Robinson County. Robinson County's poverty and prejudice are complicated by another problem, drugs. Robinson County's easy access to the coast and a major north-south highway like I-95 make it a prime location for cocaine distribution. The extent of the drug problem in Robinson County depends on who's talking about it. On one side, there's people like civil rights attorney Bob Warren, who believe Robinson County is a major drug distribution center. We've had estimates of the amount of cocaine being sent through Robinson County anywhere from 20 kilos every week or 10 days to 100 kilos every week or 10 days. On the other side, there are state law enforcement officials who agree there's a problem, but disagree on its scope. Some major drug dealers have gone to jail. There's still some other cases pending. And, uh, you know, that area has a significant problem, but it's shared with other places in North Carolina and the nation. People like Bob Warren, who believe Robinson County is a major drug center, allege either direct involvement by local law enforcement or, at the very least, a hands-off approach to the drug trade. In mid-1986, a large amount of cocaine confiscated by the Sheriff's Department mysteriously disappeared from the evidence locker. In November of 1986, the sheriff's son, Deputy Kevin Stone, shot and killed an alleged drug dealer, Jimmy Earl Cummings. Cummings, an Indian, was unarmed. Jimmy Earl Cummings' mother is still bitter about the investigation into her son's shooting. The family got less than four hours' notice of the coroner's inquest. The entire investigation was the result of two Native American activists, Eddie Hatcher and Timothy Jacobs. They held the Robinsonian newspaper hostage in 1988, demanding a state investigation into local corruption of law enforcement tied to narcotics. Hi, we're Native American drug addicts. <laughs> Fear and desperation turned into violence February 1st, when two Tuscarora Indians seized the Robinsonian newspaper in Lumberton and held 20 employees hostage. Eddie Hatcher and Timothy Jacobs claimed their lives were in danger because they had information linking local law enforcement officials to drug trafficking in the county. The hostages were released unharmed after Governor Martin promised to send a task force to investigate the claims of corruption. The task force still hasn't found any evidence to back up the charges, but last month in Raleigh, a federal jury made it clear they believed Hatcher and Jacobs' story by finding the two men innocent of all charges in the incident. They alleged that Hubert Stone, the sheriff at the time, had a deputy and son, Kevin Stone, that assisted the sheriff's department in trafficking narcotics throughout Robinson County. Hatcher and Jacobs also claimed that Hubert's son had wrongfully murdered someone they knew, Jimmy Earl Cummings. A death investigation cleared Stone's name of any wrongdoing, though the two men taking the hostages feared for their lives. And I'm sure the 17 hostages did as well. The 10-hour standoff ended peacefully after the governor agreed to look into the allegations. So coincidentally, if that's not crazy enough, 1988 was also the year Lumbee politician Julian T. Pierce was murdered in his Lumberton home under mysterious circumstances 
after campaigning against corruption uh, during an election for the North Carolina Superior Court judge position in Robeson County. His opponent sworn in after his death, Joe Freeman Britt Sr., went on to earn the reputation of deadliest prosecutor in America in 1988. Partially due to the high number of successful death penalty convictions, some infamously for defendants of incredibly low IQs, later pardoned after being exonerated by DNA evidence. Britt remained defiant in his prosecutions. Ironically, Julian Pierce actually defeated Britt in the election posthumously once all the votes were counted. You've got to pause and wonder if Julian Pierce could have helped shape a different future in Robinson County more than he already had. If you're interested in the conspiracies behind his death, you should watch a documentary funded by UNC Chapel Hill, County on the Brink. We've been using clips from that throughout this episode. Pierce's daughter, last I read, was still campaigning to have the state reopen the death investigation. There are a lot of folks I run into while I'm out campaigning that's had experience with our courtrooms and systems in Robinson County, and they're displeased with the, how over, overcrowded the docket is. Uh, how many times they had to go to court without ever having their case heard, and they may be just witnesses. Those same people that worked on the merger issue were behind Julian, and they saw a new, new day for Robinson County to have not only an Indian judge, but a fair judge, a judge that across the board was going to go in and the corruption was going to end, and he was a real threat. Before he officially announced his candidacy in February, Pierce's supporters say he was asked not to run. Uh, Julian was approached and asked to drop out of the race. Hope that ended early one March, Saturday morning. Pierce's cousin, Charles Locklear, came over to help him put up campaign posters. And as I reached to turn the knob, it was unlocked. And, and as I opened the door, I was uh, speaking to him or calling out to him. And, looked and that's when I saw his uh, body lying over here. Julian Pierce had been shot three times with a shotgun, once in the chest, once in the side, and a third time at point-blank range behind the ear. And my immediate thoughts was, you know, somebody's coming here has been paid to shoot him and that's what's happened. Immediately after the murder, law enforcement officials called it the work of a professional killer and reported they were following leads outside Robeson County. Then two days later, Sheriff Hubert Stone announced the case was solved, that Julian Pierce was the victim of a bizarre domestic dispute involving Pierce's girlfriend, Ruth Locklear, her daughter Shannon, and Shannon's boyfriend, Johnny Goins. A 1983 study by an organization investigating justice in rural America found that Joe Freeman Britt's near-total control of the court system of Robinson and Scotland counties led to a widespread and serious denial of the rights of poor defendants. The previous district attorney, Johnson Britt, who has never tried to hide his disdain for his distant cousin, says that he's a bully, and that's the way he ran his office, he told the Times in 2014. People were afraid of him. Lawyers were afraid of him. They were intimidated by his tactics, and he didn't mind doing it that way. Johnson Britt would find himself retiring in 2019, after his successor was voted in, amid the controversy surrounding Hanya Aguilar's murder not being reined in years earlier by the sheriff's department, over a DNA match to another rape. Are you starting to see a cycle here? As soon as the truth about what is happening at any given time in Robinson County comes out, everyone worth being held accountable seems to fade into history. While I'm sure that's not a pattern unique to just that area, it does seem particularly extreme here. Back to Eddie and Timothy, the Lumbee Native Americans that held the Robisonian hostage. 
Both men were acquitted on federal terrorism charges, but served time regardless for other offenses tied to the act. By no means were the men saints given their background, if you care to research. And obviously, while their actions are debatable as far as their ethical compass goes, what they ultimately did led to the curtain being pulled up on systemic corruption going on for decades in Robeson County. And again, their efforts wouldn't come to fruition until the late 2000s as the public started to understand the full scope of Operation Tarnished Badge and what it found. Part of the reason the hostages were released ultimately is the government did agree, the governor specifically agreed to look into all this in order to find a peaceful resolution. And as a result, they were released and then peacefully charged later. As far as Hubert Stone and his son Kevin go, they were later cleared of all wrongdoing after investigations by federal and state authorities. It should be noted, however, that the North Carolina SBI has experienced its own fair share of corruption in the past, including false lab tests that affected important cases including one very notable murder that happened in the early 90s. The killing of the father of one of the greatest athletes of all time. We said we probably wouldn't cover it, but here we are as it's intersecting with our research and our story at large. We're talking about the murder of basketball icon Michael Jordan's father, James Jordan. A tragic event which also occurred in Lumberton in 1993. While we can't give that full story justice, this is what's important to know. Michael Jordan's father was found dead floating in a South Carolina creek, August 3, 1993. Daniel Green and Larry Demery were both convicted of murdering him, shooting him, and leaving him for dead off the side of I-95 in Robinson County. The possibility the two men connected weren't the only parties associated with the murder of James Jordan has been an issue since the beginning of that trial and beforehand. The same sheriff we mentioned earlier, Hubert Stone, was a sheriff at the time of James Jordan's murder. The two men convicted of the murder, Daniel Green and Larry Demery, called Sheriff Stone's son from James Jordan's car phone the night of the murder. No, not his son Kevin Stone, another son by the name of Hubert Larry Dees, regarded as one of the area's biggest cocaine dealers, serving federal time for doing so. Prosecution District Attorney Johnson Britt mentioned earlier and defense attorney Woodbury Bowen both declined to mention this connection or have Deese even investigated despite the very common knowledge during the trial. And by the way, we haven't told you yet that attorney Woodbury Bowen is the man we've referenced in past episodes as owning the home Kristen Bennett was found in on April 18, 2017. He's seen generations of politicians and corrupt civil servants come and go in Robinson County and Lumberton. And you have to wonder why a defense attorney wouldn't go to all links to help his client. Why wouldn't he want Dee's questioned over communicating with the men that supposedly murdered Michael Jordan's father and called him from Michael Jordan's father's car phone? It seems everyone had a vested interest in Jordan's trial going one way or were at least afraid to affect its trajectory. But that's how the conspiracy goes. Was the drug trade so powerful then, and perhaps now, that even a high-profile person's true origin of death could be swept under the rug? The SBI would later recant critical blood evidence used during the trial, coinciding with the numerous scandals taking place in that lab over the past. The appeal for Daniel Green based on these revelations has been denied as of March of this year. Yesterday, the Charlotte Observer reported that Hugh Rogers, the attorney for one of the teenagers accused of killing James Jordan, has new information concerning the case. Rogers now believes that the two suspects are innocent, that someone else murdered James Jordan, and that the two teens stumbled upon the Jordan's car, uh, James Jordan's car. He declined to give further detail. 
Lawyers for one of two men convicted in the killing of basketball superstar Michael Jordan's father 23 years ago in North Carolina say they found more evidence of police misconduct. A phone call from James Jordan's cell phone after he was fatally shot was made to a drug dealer who happened to be the son of the Robeson County Sheriff. Lawyers for Daniel Green claim Sheriff Hubert Stone didn't want the murder investigation to involve son Hubert Larry Deese, so the sheriff led authorities toward investigating the crime as a carjacking. Green's lawyers attempted to introduce that call and the son's connection to the sheriff during the 1996 trial, but the judge turned them down. Green admitted to helping dispose of Jordan's body after the 1993 killing, but says he wasn't present when co-defendant Larry Demery shot him. Demery testified against Green as part of a plea deal. Green's lawyers say notes from a 1997 drug probe strengthens their misconduct claims. It is believed that James Jordan pulled over to rest when he was killed. His body was found several weeks later. You can even find folks that believe drugs have been trafficked by law enforcement in Robinson County throughout the generations supplied by the government on the backs of the minorities and the poor people in the community. Akin to the hearings surrounding the CIA distributing crack in LA during the Iran-Contra scandal. And honestly, while it sounds quite outlandish, when you take the time to examine three, four generations of power structures throughout Robinson County and compare it to the crime statistics in the area, it seems there could be some semblance of truth, at least in how big a business narcotics have been for both of those on the right and wrong side of the law. For the record, we've only scratched the surface of explaining that history and the myriad of state and federal probes launched on the people in positions in power there. As sheriff's deputies that would be caught in tarnished badge were still reaping the rewards of their extracurricular activities long before they were brought to justice. A parallel and unrelated story that was taking shape in Lumberton during spring of 2003. Michelle Driggers was a 23-year-old white woman with dark hair and rosy cheeks with a huge smile from a town down the road from Lumberton, Maxton, North Carolina. She had been charged with prostitution back in September of 2002, but it was later dropped. The last time anyone came in contact with her, it was Saturday, March 29th, between 1.30 and 2 a.m., behind PJ's convenience store in East Lumberton the same exact neighborhood where Kristen, Rhonda, Megan, Cynthia, and Abby were before being found dead or vanishing almost 16 years later. In fact, when Rhonda's mom was given the awful news, she was told they just found two girls behind PJs. The store has been a constant variable in the landscape of these cases, being a known hub for sex workers. By the next day, Sunday, March 30th, Michelle had met her end and it seemed disturbingly similar to how Kristen and Rhonda were discovered. Michelle was spotted by a passerby in the driveway of an overgrown cemetery off Hestertown Road. She was nude, lying face down in a muddy puddle. Her clothes were scattered around her. Later findings would show she had been beaten, strangled, stabbed, and sexually assaulted with a sharp object. Nick and I found the cemetery in Lumberton almost a year ago. An open field, easy to miss if you're not looking for it. It's off an old highway spanning from Robinson County to Wilmington, North Carolina 72, I believe. It's eerie considering what once filled its driveway compared to the empty grass and jagged grave markers that were on display in the May sun back when we were there. After Michelle, another sex worker, Lisa Harden, was found four months later in July of 2003. She was about a mile from Michelle's dump site, behind a Titan Flow warehouse 
the business occupying the space at the time. There was a railroad spike behind her body, which showed signs of blunt force trauma to the head. Police wouldn't confirm if she was nude like Michelle or what other injuries she suffered. Lumberton Police Chief at the time, Robert Grice, said, It could be coincidental or it could be that someone is out there targeting prostitutes. But at this point, it's just too early to tell whether the two homicides are related. This should send a very strong signal to them that what they are doing by getting up with strangers and people they don't know is very dangerous, Grice said. Gwen Taylor, a social worker with the Lumberton Police Department at the time, worked with prostitutes trying to get them off the street. She said there were about 10 prostitutes who were frequenting that area almost daily. Many of them told her they feared for their lives at the time. Taylor, who refers to the women as my girls, said one woman in particular has not worked the streets since Harden's murder. She said she was scared and hadn't turned a trick all week, Taylor said. But she added, I don't know what else I'm supposed to do, though. She said most of the prostitutes are women who are trying to support a drug habit, which seems to be common throughout the area. These women worked in the same areas that Kristen, Rhonda, and Megan would 16 years later. They were found in somewhat similar settings with similar appearances. Graveyards, hubs for sex work. They were all likely nude, it seems. In some cases, clothing was scattered around. They were placed in humiliating positions. All sex workers and addicts, many mothers, some having been formally charged with prostitution, some not, but still believed to have engaged in it, at least informally. All of them frequented East Lumberton. The warehouse Lisa was found behind even seems, based on local theories, to be where Cynthia Jacobs met her demise. Michelle was last seen in the same location as Rhonda, Kristen, and Megan before meeting their ends. But most important to note, all these women faced the brute force of someone's anger and disdain for them. You could ponder connections across the years between Michelle and Lisa to Rhonda, Kristen, Megan, Cynthia, and really Abby to some degree, as far as victimology goes. Ultimately, I don't think the focus should be debating on their connections, though the idea sparks tremendous curiosity, but more so the fact that they are another prime example of, of history repeating itself in Robinson County as a flat circle, rotating to the same scene in different years, never really changing, narcotics trafficked by families on both sides of the law, civil rights of minorities and poor constantly violated, hopeful political figures mysteriously killed, all the while a shadow of prospect of a serial predator or predators in the area maybe having grown increasingly comfortable over the years in their environment. What else can you expect in a town that was apparently bought and sold decades ago? sold to the worst parts of human nature and rotting from the inside out as a community. And it's that very dynamic that helps bring us full circle. This is an area where two men felt the need to take a newspaper hostage. True justice wasn't provided for over 30 years. A town where Michael Jordan's father's murder seemingly might not have received true justice. A town where potentially law enforcement operated as a for-profit business on the backs of their neighbors without impunity for generations. How can we expect sex workers and addicts, the less dead, perhaps targeted by one or multiple predators, to receive the attention they deserve in a community like this, then, and now? Ultimately, anytime someone tries to investigate happenings of this sort in Robinson County, a good old boy attitude comes across just as prevalent today as it was in the 1980s. Where I feel that there's a problem is 
these outside lawyers coming in Robinson County. Uh, even the media at times come in on accusations and allegations that have been made. And they just, it, you know, it is misinterpreted and the reputation of a great county is just tarnished. That's the way I feel. But maybe the blame can't be placed on just outsiders or a core group of dissidents if there is such a thing. Suspicion and distrust find fertile ground in Robeson County. Some of the people here for so long have had nothing else to turn to. I think if there's anything we got a right to be pointing a finger at is the lack of opportunity that these people have not had over the years to economically develop. I have never seen an instance in all of my business career that I couldn't identify a man's misfortunes due to his material, lack of material gain or opportunity. And if you take that away, as far as I'm concerned, you'll take away the problem. Until you do take it away, you can feel as sorry as you want to, you can replace that sheriff with a dozen others. And it will not change the basic concept of a man's mind that he didn't have a chance. The charges of corruption, the questions about who killed Julian Pierce, or why there are still reports of drug trafficking may remain questions in the minds of many. If there were no questions about these issues, there would be questions about others. The underlying problems in Robeson County are much deeper, much darker, and much harder to answer. The fear is very, very deep. The difficulty becomes separating fact from fiction. And the fear is so deep that not only do people fear those who, are, uh, who make decisions over their lives, but also their neighbors and their family members and people in the community and every community leader uh, themselves are suspect. So the fear uh, uh, becomes so cyclical that it's so easy for, for people to get wrapped in that web of fear that they can't see a way out. And what we must begin to do is use uh, the wisdom of our minds and hearts and document what is fact and what is fiction and begin to slowly move forward uh, in spite of the fear. The coroner ruled the shooting was either accidental or self-defense. That ruling outraged the Indian community, and for the first time, Indians, blacks, and whites protested together. From that point on, any death or murder in the county raised suspicion. It was as if the poor and frustrated had finally found a cause, right or wrong, to believe in. They now had a crusade, and it kept building. The allegations, the suspicions, the paranoia, the fear. So if you haven't yet, if you want to be featured in a future Q&A episode, you can call in and leave a message at our Darkwater hotline, 919-307-9331. That's 919-307-9331. Or email us at darkwaterpod at gmail.com. That's darkwaterpod at gmail.com. And thank you again to Justin from Moonside Sound for always providing us top quality music for your ears. Thank you to him. And by the way, we're on Facebook and Instagram. Just search Darkwater Podcast. 
And if you have a moment, please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts or enjoy us wherever you listen to your podcast. That works too. Thanks. Nick and I research, write, record, produce, and score this podcast together. Our friend Justin Moonside, he makes all the music exclusively for it. Otherwise, thank you for listening, and we'll have another episode out in a couple weeks. Feel free to communicate with us in the interim and let us know what you're thinking.